I'm pleased to introduce Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is co-author of California Crack Up and author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. He is Sokolos California editor and a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University. In addition, Joe is a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times, lead blogger at NBC's California site Prop Zero, and co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you all very much for being here tonight. Thanks to Cal Humanities um, for making this possible. The topic for tonight is vigilance within democracy. And um, the topic was inspired by the, the Jefferson quote about the, 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 the price of what the price of, uh, of freedom and liberty were, were vigilance. Um, Jefferson also said, uh, it was reported to have said that uh, um, in given the choice between uh, government and newspapers and doing without one or the other, he would have preferred to have newspapers than government. Uh, but then he got elected to office and he began to claim he had been misquoted. Um, so from, from that sort of um, uh, framework, Zocalo um, puts together, uh, looks at big questions from a lot of different perspectives and different contexts. We have three very different uh, people here from uh, different parts of the country, uh, different backgrounds, but they're, they're, they are all uh, journalists um, in, in various formats. And they're all people who have looked at, while well, looking at a wide variety of topics, among the topics that they have looked at are uh, the media itself and specifically questions about how um, we keep a check on power, we keep a check on government. Um, and you're going to hear from all three of them. I'll introduce each of them as, as I ask them a question. Immediately to my right um, is uh, Bernardo Ruiz. Um, his um, uh, most recent film, Reportero, which is an incredible film if you haven't seen it, um, uh, you, you must. Um, it follows a, a veteran a, a reporter named Sergio Haro, his colleagues at um, an embattled Mexican news weekly in Tijuana, Zeta, as they report on organized crime, corrupt local officials. Uh, the film's completed a 12-city tour of Mexico, uh, screened at the full-frame documentary film festival, the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, and the LA Film Festival. It airs January 7th, correct, uh, 2013, yeah. on the uh, PBS documentary series POV. Um, he's also currently serving as executive producer of two one-hour do documentaries examining the nation's dropout crisis, um, and previously he was the director-producer of American Experience, Roberto Clemente, uh, which was the winner of the NCLR Alma Award for Outstanding Made for Television Documentary. He's done a number of other things. The question, though, for you I have is, what does vigilance mean at this time of transition of how we get information, decline of some institutions, including newspapers that did vigilance for us, um, that performed um, vigilance, the changes in how reporting is done. I mean, what, what does it mean? What, what should it mean in this context? And, and what does it mean in particular for the kinds of reporters that you, you know, have most recently made this film about who are covering, you know, really difficult stories where there's real risk involved? I think, you know, from... Um my perspective uh, as a documentary filmmaker, I don't know that I would consider myself a, a, a journalist in the traditional sense. I think I'm tasked with a, I have a slightly different um, set of challenges in front of, in front of me. Uh, like a traditional journalist, I have to be factually accurate. But then that's really a point of departure to, to, to hopefully perform some, something that's um, some kind of artistry in, in theory. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't always get there. But, but for me, Vigilance uh, is, is also um, about depth. So I made Reportero 
uh, about Seminario Seta, about the staff of uh, the reporters there, mainly Sergio Otto and Adela Navarro, who's the, the co-director of the paper. And I, I wanted to make the film because so much of the uh, U.S. cable coverage that I was seeing about the drug war, especially in this part of the country, to me seemed um, woefully decontextualized. To me, it felt like uh, rubbernecking body count journalism. Uh, X number of people uh, shot up in the street on this day. Uh, you know, uh, this person was beheaded there. But no context, no, uh, no background, no history, no, no, no deepening of this story. And so I'm by no means an expert in Mexico's uh, drug war. But uh, I did have a very strong interest in, in this region and in, in Tijuana. And so I, I began researching the project as early as 2007 while actually looking for another story. But um, in my case as a filmmaker, un unlike uh, many beat journalists who have to knock out a story quickly, who don't have the amount of uh, time mm -hmm. that you need often to tell these stories, I had, uh, while I was in production, I had roughly a little over two years to spend with a story. That's enough time to really deepen uh, your sense of a, of a place, of an institution, to gain trust in, in sources, and to hopefully tell a, a deeper narrative. Whether or not I succeeded or failed in that task is up to the audience um, and, you know, and, and the people who kind of push back on, on my perspective. But, but for me, uh, the ability to spend time with an issue, to deepen uh, your understanding of that issue, hopefully provide that depth to audiences. To me, that, that's key in, in trying to take apart that, that issue of, of vigilance. Um, I'm, I'm now going to talk about two different kinds of pressures which are in no way um, um, similar, um, but speak to sort of how hard it is to be um, a professional uh, reporter or prof documentary filmmaker in these times. I mean, in your film, you, you tell stories of, I mean, there are a couple of reporters, a columnist named Hector Feliz, a, a courts reporter at Zeta uh, named Francisco Ortiz, we see die. Um, we see uh, the founder of Zeta, uh, uh, you know, sort of shot, living on this side of the border to, to avoid danger. Um, you know, in a time where it's sort of so hard to sort of make a living doing this anywhere, um, you know, are we asking too much of professional journalists, do you think, you know? It's a great question. Um, I think what the, the newspaper reporters that I profile in, in Reportero, um, Sergio Otto, the, the lead reporter that I profile himself, had very serious threats uh, that actually forced him to send his family away for a while. Um, but what they would say to me is, look, we're just regional reporters. We're doing our piece. We're covering organized crime as we see it play out in this, in this region. But what are the U.S. reporters doing? So it's, it's, I, I, had, um, I was speaking to Carlos Dada, who uh, basically started one of Latin America's first online news outlets. They're called El Faro, very uh, fabulous online news outlet. Um, and uh, he, he was saying it's, it's almost as if David Copperfield were at the border when these SUVs packed with methamphetamines and other drugs and other illicit narcotics as, as they're being uh, funneled into the United States. It's as if they magically vanish when they hit the United States. Who's doing the reporting on the criminal distribution networks within the United States, in Atlanta, Dallas, uh, Los Angeles, you name it? Who, who's doing that kind of reporting here? There's so much attention being focused on what's happening in Mexico 
and we're lamenting the, the, uh, the strengths or weaknesses of reporting within Mexico, but, but the Mexican reporters, especially the regional ones, were the ones being hardest hit. It's not the reporters in Mexico City or Guadalajara, it's the ones in these little regional uh, outlets like, like, like Seta, Tijuana. They really wanna know what's, what's, who's telling the other side of the story. And even pulling back further, who's doing the, the money reporting? All of these narco dollars, where are they being banked? Um, who, who's doing the stories about money laundering? So I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, no, you but um, that, that's certainly a, a kind of a pushback there. So who's telling the, kind of the big story and, and, and the small story? Let me um, bring Carrie Lozano into the conversation. Um, uh, she's a barrier-based uh, uh, documentary filmmaker, journalist. Um, uh, has done a lot of work, produced the Academy Award nominee, The Weather Underground, um, which appeared at Sundance. Uh, produced and directed the Student Academy Award-winning film Reporter uh, Zero, which was about uh, Randy Schiltz. Mm -hmm. We brought her for that and also for, um, she's really an emerging expert in um, the question of sort of collaborative uh, uh, reporting journalists between news organizations, between citizens and news organizations. She works uh, uh, the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley um, and has um, developed the program's collaborative reporting efforts, co-founder PBS Media Shifts Collaboration Central. Um, very basic question, you heard what Bernardo said about, you know, who's doing this kind of reporting on the subject in the United States. I mean, for something like that, for anything, do existing American media have the resources, you know, an individual paper, an individual television station to do the kind of sophisticated reporting on the sort of the, the toughest stories to get at? So if, if my boss was here, my boss is Lowell Bergman at UC Berkeley, and for any of you who've seen The Insider, he, was, he is the insider, Al Pacino. And um, what he says, I can't take credit for this quote, is that investigative reporting is not non-profit, it's anti-profit. Mm -hmm. And it always has been, and he's right. I mean, really, nobody ever had the resources to spend two years on a story, to, to just sit a reporter. Nobody knows this, but the New York Times didn't even have an investigative unit until the 1990s, and maybe 1989, but it was, I think it was somewhere in the 90s. And even then, it was just really a couple of people at that time. So... On the one hand, yes, there's been a lot of hand-wringing, and I don't want to say that nothing's been lost, because I think especially, um, and Scott can talk about this, at the local level, a lot has been lost. The local watchdog, you know, for sure is, I think, hurting around the country. At the national level, I don't know that it's so much the case that we're not able to be vigilant anymore. I just think that vigilance is taking a different form. It's taking form in more collaborative efforts, where people are working together uh, to produce really in-depth stories uh, that are hard-hitting, that do help take that watchdog role. Um, and also, it's happening in other mediums. So a lot of documentary filmmaking is becoming increasingly uh, investigative, and there's becoming much more support and acknowledgement for that. So it's, you know, if you look at the numbers over time, yes, more newspapers don't exist, a lot of reporters have lost their jobs, in fact, and that's true, you can't deny it. But I went to the investigative reporting conference this year and it, there were 1,500 people there, and it was one of the largest turnouts ever. So people are still doing the work, they're doing it in different ways, the money has always been hard to come by, it may be, in fact, harder, but we also have wider means of distribution. So I, it's hard to say what, in, in a, there's no clear cost-benefit analysis of was it better then than it is now. I'm not 100% convinced. I just think it's different now. Okay, now I worked in three newsrooms, that of the Baltimore Sun, the Wall Street Journal, and the LA Times. And you know, when I hear talk about collaborative reporting, 
I, I mean, you know, I've worked with many brilliant people, but playing well with others was <laughs> not a strength of the people right, right. I worked with across any of those things. They were very, very difficult yeah. folks. Yeah. They had a hard time collaborating and getting along with the person, you know, sitting next to them in the newsroom on the, in the same place. Um, you know, my old uh, boss from the LA Times, Dean Bacay, this symposium you were at earlier, you know, this year, called the whole collaborative, dismissed it, said it's a pain in the A. Yeah. Um, right. well, tell me what one of these things looks like. You've actually watched them and been embedded in them. Right. Explain what happens and how do they get along or do they actually do they get along? So, you know, for those of you who haven't worked in a newsroom before, you know, journalists and news organizations are incredibly competitive. And oftentimes, even today, there's in your contract, you're signing confidentiality agreements. You won't talk about your story. And there's a, a story that at the Washington Post, I don't know if this is true, I haven't been able to confirm it, that they used to assign reporters the same story. They'd assign the same story to two reporters just to get that competitive edge, see who does a better job. So there's a huge cultural issue here. What's happening now, though, because of diminished resources, Resources is that news organizations are in fact starting to say, oh, I can't do that type of work on my own. I'm going to start to work with other technically competing news organizations. So I've been involved um, mostly in large-scale collaborations that involved PBS Frontline, that involved ProPublica, which is a nonprofit. Right now we're doing something with Univision and the Center for Investigative Reporting. This is all, it, it might seem like a no-brainer. I mean, it kind of is, especially today. But it's true that culturally, it's just completely out of the norm. So we received at UC Berkeley a Knight grant a couple of years ago. And what the Knight Foundation asked us to do was to kind of do a, a how-to model for how to do collaborative reporting. And what we quickly realized is that, oh, before we can teach people how to do this, we need to change their minds about it. Like, we need to, you know, change the culture in some ways, or at least to start to talk about the culture. So, do they always play well with others? No, not always. And it can be really difficult. So, my big thing, the thing that I say at every conference is that I think in the news industry, we need to do a lot more, put a lot more effort into teaching teamwork in the way that other businesses do, and into teaching leadership. Because with good leadership and, and good teamwork skills and acknowledgement of that, actually, reporters can do a job that they feel good about working are, together. Are these collaborations because of money? Because there's not enough money, so everyone needs to get their money together, or the audience is too fractured? Is it just basically it's, money and audience? It's both. Yeah. I mean, it's both. For Frontline, uh, the executive producers there just felt like they, they don't have investigative reporters on staff. They can't do it. They can't afford it. They want to have the most cutting-edge investigative stories on the air. The way they do that is to work with other organizations who are doing investigative work. They're not broadcast organizations necessarily. They're investigative reporters. So it's about the money, and it's also about the fractured audience. And one thing that we realized when we worked on a series with uh, ProPublica, Frontline, and NPR was that when you have an NPR story with 25 million listeners, more people are going to watch the broadcast. So it's kind of finding ways to capitalize on different audiences and on different skill sets. Great. Thank you very much. Let's um, bring in Scott Lewis, um, who's the CEO of The Voice of San Diego. I think uh, recognizable to many people here. He manages the internal operations and the strategic vision for the organization. Uh, he's created uh, uh, partnerships and projects. He's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, he's a regular on, on TV and radio, hosts the weekly segment San Diego Fact Check and San Diego Explain on NBC7 here. And... Uh, his columns run in, uh, in San Diego Magazine. He's got a weekly radio show in Kogo, et cetera, et cetera. So you're one of these 
serial collaborators, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, um, to, to use an old world in a different context. Um, but you've got a staff, this Voice of San Diego for All This Attention has 10 people, right? Yeah. So what kind of vigilance void can you fill, you know, with partnerships and your, and your young, hungry, talented staff? And what can't you do? Well, one of the things I'd love to do is actually map what we're not doing, um, <laughs> the areas, the geographies, the institutions that aren't being covered and watched. I mean, there is a, just a function of holding a mirror up to somebody and they fix their hair, right? <laughs> and so there is just, just by showing people that you're watching, there's a, there's a positive effect. Um, you know, our goal is to cover things, to use our resources as best we can, which means that we absolutely cannot repeat or be redundant to anybody else's work, which means that, you know, Jeff Jarvis has that quote, you do what you do best and you link to the rest. Um, our, what we do best is find narratives, find investigations, find stories that we can really be the best at and that we can frame and that we can uh, explain. And, and then... Um, let other people do what, they're, what they do best and accentuate that and try to help that. So when we look at partnerships, we look at, um, we're looking at a world where the, the producers of content, the drivers of, of, of explanation and, and, and storytelling don't have to be tied to the means of distribution, you know, a broadcast or a printing press or whatever. Um, the idea that, that you should have the means of production and distribution within the same operation that comes up with the storytelling, I think, is, is an old one just based on, on the newspaper having a printing press in its building. And so, you know, we've decided that we can be this, this agency that supports public radio, that supports commercial radio, that supports um, uh, magazines and, and TV, and that we can all work together to try to tell the best stories possible. Um, you know, we're switching also to uh, not necessarily think of what our reporters do as cover beats, but to cover narratives instead. The human mind learns and thinks in narratives. And so um, rather than just putting one person on education to, to try to gobble that entire fire hose that comes at him, uh, to put some, somebody and have them come up with the narratives that they're going to follow. They can add new narratives, they can subtract them, but really try to explain them and make sure that people are enrolled because uh, uh, if they're not enrolled in those narratives, then, then something will play out without their impact, and, and that's the point of it. Just a follow-up question. I'm not thinking of any city in particular here. But, for example, with that kind of operation, let's say you yeah. were, had that kind of operation in a city where the daily newspaper in town started to do some very strange things. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> um, you know, was owned by somebody who wanted to, was very openly talking they were going to, you know, you know, support particular causes, particular developments, particular parties. Just imagine that okay. something like that could happen. I'll try. Um, <laughs> does that add to the obligation of citizens, of people like you, to do more to fill that void? Or, is, or can, you, can you fill the void of a newspaper? Is that city just out of luck if, it, if its well, newspaper think, goes off the rails? I think a couple of things. First of all, it, it's a remarkable symbol of what's happening to... Um, journalism. Um, locally, the owners of the Union Tribune just purchased the North County Times um, for less than the owner of the UT sold his house for. The assets are just completely collapsing in value. They bought the North County Times for $12 million. He had sold his house for 18. It's an expensive house. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I, so setting aside that, these, these properties can be acquired and, and done with as you may. 
But the, uh, this is not an expensive problem to fix. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember. I, I run on a budget of a little more than a million dollars. That's a lot to a person like me. But to uh, a cultural institution with impact for the entire city, it's really not that much. We're in a museum uh, that runs on a much higher budget. Um, you know, theater companies, ballet companies, university uh, uh, colleges within universities, even just professors within universities often run on different on bigger budgets. Point being that if we wanted to solve this and if we realized that we wanted to have far more coverage, uh, there are ways to do that. And, and we have set up a society that knows how to fund institutions with that type of impact. Uh, you know, the Texas Tribune is our um, sort of, we, we inspired the creation of the Texas Tribune, now they inspire us with their ideas and their structure. And they, and they were created by people from the Texas Monthly Magazine who wanted to focus on really on state politics in Texas, essentially? Yeah, we got, um, we were featured on the front page of the North County, of the New York Times um, uh, after some investigations that we did. And then they called us that day and said, well, how do you do that? What are you going to do? What can we do here? And they decided they wanted to do an entity in Austin that covered politics that would be relevant to the entire state. And now they're running at a three or four or five million dollar budget. I believe it's about four. And we're all, you know, gawking at that. But that's really not that much <laughs> money for the type of impact mm -hmm. an institution like that can have. Um, and, you know, with a combination of events with, uh, with uh, corporate and, and member sponsors, uh, you can do some pretty impressive things. And so, um, you know, we are trying to look at this as a problem to solve. Don't cover anything unless we can do it better than anyone else or no one else is doing it. And, um, and you know, make sense of what people say, uh, fact check it and that sort of thing. But then, um, but then find out what they don't want to say as well. And so uh, applying those types of metrics to the stories and narratives that you're going to cover can make it so that you're leveraging a small amount of resources a lot better than, than perhaps the old models did. Um, for the whole panel, what's in, so you, you mentioned, Bernardo, specifically a story here, that big story here that's getting missed. What are we missing when, you know, when we sort of, you know, we do the things we can with the resources we can. What, what are the holes that are opening up where we're not being vigilant, do you think? What are the areas that we... That well, I think there's geographic and there's qualitative. Um, there's, there's areas that you're not covering. There's institutions that simply are, are going about their business. One of the problems that we face, though, is that people appreciate investigative journalism when it's, when it's done, when it has its impact. But when it's not around, you don't know what you're missing necessarily. You don't, and and so, not you know we don't know what we don't know. Um, and I think that's that's an important quote for all of us. Right. I, I mean, we look for stories really where work really literally is not being done. So one of the big stories we've done, a series of stories in the last year, was about death investigation in America. So you may read about uh, a murder investigation in your town or in the nearby city, and it might seem kind of flawed and weird, but then that's kind of the end of it. And so this came from a long trail of reporting done by many different people, but we started to just get a sense that we didn't have a sense of what the country looked like. But death, what does death investigation mean? We started to learn that there were no rules for what it meant to be a coroner. You didn't have to be a doctor or trained in some cities. In, in one city, there's an anecdote that somebody was also the janitor as well as the coroner. So we actually are looking for tips where there's a story in front of you, the, the local you know, flawed murder investigation, but what's behind that? And that's kind of what we're always doing, is trying to 
look at an issue that may be all around us, but that no one's kind of found a really particular angle. And we're lucky because we have the capacity to do national stories and to try to get different organizations involved to look at something on a national scale. I think just to piggyback on that, I think, I mean, as a documentary filmmaker and as an independent, I mean, I have a small company, but we're, we're four people. But um, really, it's that at that moment when you commit to a story, <laughs> you better know that you're gonna, you're, you're gonna do a good job or that you're gonna, you, you, once you go down that rabbit hole, we're talking about a couple of years. But uh, I think for, for me, the criteria is always, can I even take a narrative that's out there and that's well known, I kind of find a back door into that story. I always think about that Jimmy, Jimmy Breslin story about uh, when uh, the, I don't the know. Legendary if it's columnist in New York, for those who don't know they Exactly, who uh, uh, when, when uh, Kennedy was being buried, was looking for an angle and a way to tell the story and ended up doing this beautiful piece uh, interviewing the gravedigger. So kind of telling the whole story of Kennedy's death but through the point of view of this, this gravedigger. And I always think, okay, well, I mean, it was a little bit what I did with Reporteros. How do you, how do you, how, how do you talk about the drug war? How do you talk about U.S. links to that drug war? How do you talk about this thing that's so impossible? Um, well, you know, you have to root it in, in, in some specific story and then also find some kind of backdoor, some, some, some different way into it. So I think for me, that's always a, 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 you know, an important piece of the, of the puzzle. Um, just to, to, to look at another aspect of this, um, you hear a lot about citizens doing journalistic things, witnessing with their cameras all over the world. And, and, and I, I found myself thinking as I was watching Repertero about, you know, everyone from, you know, folks in Syria, you know, in homes trying to sort of show what they could to, you know, folks here in Oakland um, uh, with camera phones trying to sort of show police, you know, misbehaving. Um, you know, someone who, you know, clearly in this wrestled a lot with the question of the acts of journalism, how to protect people, whether they're citizens or professionals, committing acts of journalism. What do you think? I mean, have we, we don't really have a big conversation about that. We sometimes talk about a federal shield law. Should there be an international standard of, you know, journalistic rights where, you know, if you're committing journalism, you should be protected in some way? How do you protect those folks? Well, good luck implementing that law. That would be the first thing. But I, I, I think that's, I mean, it's a great question. It's something that the, the journalists in Tijuana struggle with all the time with the rise of social media and even sites that I'm sure many of you have heard about, sites like El Blog del Narco, which started off as this, this compendium of information about uh, basically narco-turf wars, uh, shootings in streets, uh, beheadings, etc. It started off almost like, like a kind of visual wallpaper of violence. It has since become, interestingly, has become more sophisticated and is beginning to, to write articles and put, um, the editor is of course anonymous, but they're, they're beginning to publish pieces. So this, this thing that was touted early on as, as being this kind of, this innovative or this new information delivery uh, system is now morphing into a more traditional uh, journalistic entity. Uh, mm -hmm. But what the journalists had said then and, and would say is that um, that's great that that information is there. And yes, the, the kind of iPhone video or the, you know, the, the, the man on the street, so-called man on the street uh, video of an event can be uploaded quickly, but who's providing context and analysis? And it's not that you, we, we, you know, we, we need to always rely on experts, but um, if you're writing for a weekly, like at SETA, that really gives you a, 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 a totally different uh, approach. You, you can provide context, you can pro provide perspective um, in a way that, that uh, you don't necessarily get from the, the, that immediate delivery of, of information, of, of data. 
What about the two of you are both doing collaborative work? Uh, to what extent are you using stuff that comes in from citizens? To what extent are you putting data and maps and other things out that citizens can then, can then put the pieces together sometimes where you can't? How much of that do you do? What's its value and what doesn't work about it? Well, we haven't found a, a magic formula. Um, uh, we don't have the, the type of investment you can make in some of the tools, the data tools that other people do. I think it's important to remember journalists have always used the crowd to they put out a you know a story knowing full well that the responses are probably more valuable than the story that they put out in order to see what, what the truth is. I think that um, we're just entering a really exciting phase. You mentioned context. Um, the... Uh, with, these, with this disruption, there's been a lot of different efforts to do the same role that journalists do. Not just do classified job ads better, but also to maybe organize information a little bit better. And one of the roles that I think journalists never quite picked up the way that they should have and that we're trying to explore more and more is their educational role. So you can do investigative journalism, but the, the idea that, um, that people understand everything journalists talk about or write about in their stories each day is really um, something we need to examine because they're not following these stories very well. They, uh, and, and it's not their fault that the stories aren't being told very fully. They're not being brought up to speed. I think that the number of people who know how uh, school board elections work or how um, different aspects of our community actually function um, before they can even get enrolled in the story about how they're developing is, is something that journalists need to take stock in and, and step back from. Um, and there's, being, there's formulas being applied to how we're telling stories, things like fact checks and, and explains and reader's guides and stuff like that that help people enroll in those stories a little easier. So, yeah. yeah, to the collaboration citizen question. Yeah. We are not an outlet. We're an, a program at the University of California at Berkeley. It's a graduate program that does real reporting, but we are not, we're working with different organizations. So we don't really have an initiative per se but what I will say is that there are organizations that are doing incredible work with citizens. The Guardian UK, to me, is the best example of a large news organization that works with citizens on huge scale. One of the things they did in the last couple of years was to pull some public records about the way that their politicians were spending money, millions and millions of documents, and they created kind of a form and citizens volunteered to go through those millions of documents, and they kind of competed, and it was amazingly successful. I don't know how many thousands of people participated, but it was a lot, and The Guardian is very innovative and probably less squeamish uh, than, than American journalists at trying to find ways to engage uh, citizens. I will say, for us, we, we don't get a lot of cold calls or tips, but we, we never ignore, I don't know if there's journalists or aspiring journalists out there, we never ignore a tip. I don't care how crazy it seems, how nonsensical it seems, how far-fetched about aliens, we always follow up on every single tip. And you will be surprised at how many amazing stories actually we get out of those tips. Uh, so, or, you know, having a conversation on an airplane. So on that way, uh, we definitely deal with people in a real serious way. And when we do large-scale investigations, one of the things that we try to do is to make information available for other reporters. So with the death investigation, we created maps that showed in each, I think, county or state level, I think it's different at, different, at the county level, how investigations worked, what journalists could do to report in their communities, and trying to share as much information as we can so that other reporters can take what we've done and then carry it forward. Um, something both of you said, and particularly when Scott started talking about educational, 
I, I, I couldn't help but thinking of the Internal Revenue Service when you started talking about the educational. Um, you've got a nonprofit yeah. uh, organization. You're collaborating with nonprofits. Is Bernardo Ruiz Productions uh, a for-profit or non? Well, it, it, it's a, not a nonprofit, but I've, I've, I've never made a profit as a documentary filmmaker. Fair enough. And I'm funded primarily by, by public funders okay. so, and foundations. So, so your nonprofit, um, you know, You've got money from foundations, which all say you don't have to. They can be a little fickle. They can be, you know, they've got agendas. Problem one. Absolutely. Second problem is the IRS seems to not buy, in, in many cases, or not buying yet the notion that um, nonprofit journalistic enterprises are educational things. How do you right. wrestle with, you know, both of those? There's a, dis- there's a discomfort in the prior generation with the idea that, that newspapers um, aren't going to be okay. <laughs> and so um, the idea that it needs to be a public service type entity that takes that role is still um, something they're getting accustomed to. There is movement in a positive direction. These are older that. IRS agents who are holding back. I don't know what the hell I, <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I, um, um, my point being, though, what I'm kind of trying to address is that there, there is a role for, as journalists of education. There is a gap between when you leave school, even college, and, and, and civic engagement and being able to maybe run for office. Yeah. So what that knowledge is, how do you learn all of the things about how your community works? There is a gap, and we have no organized system for how to get you to that point other than for you to individually, you know, get upset about your student, your, your, your son's school or a stop sign that's not in place or something like that, and then you start getting engaged. Uh, I don't think it should be that uh, serendipitous, and so that's why I think that our type of organizations can embrace that educational role and do more of it while we're doing edu- uh, investigative and, and, and vigilance. To the specific question, have you had a hard time getting 501c3? No, we were, we were one of the first, so maybe they, they started to dial back when there were more controversial organizations applying. Um, you know, we uh, it's 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 gone quite well. We've never had a trouble with it, and and you know, the it's important to note that the members, people who want to support us, it's not a question in their mind uh, when they when they make that decision. Uh, everyone's wondering, would people support journalism? Organizations and all these all these newspapers fall apart, and they say, "Well, people aren't willing to pay for journalism." Well, have you asked? Like, so few of them have asked. The Rocky Mountain News fell apart without ever once pleading with its community to um, support it. And, really? And just, they just close it down. They never asked, "Please help us." Subscribe, they never said anything about raising rates. Yeah. Uh, and it just stopped. And there's uh, this website just stood there like a depressing time capsule for months. And it drove me nuts because these, these entities are falling apart without ever actually wondering what their community would support. And frankly, a nonprofit is, is a much, in much better situation to actually make that plea to the community because a for-profit, these are set up for shareholder values where actually receiving money as gifts is kind of awkward, although we're seeing it in different newsrooms around the country. So you're saying you're a more sympathetic face for a public plea than Doug Manchester. <laughs> I'm saying that, um, that a mission-based organization yeah. is a more sympathetic organization to support with, with, um, with your dollar. Um, Carrie, when you've reported on some of these collaborations that are foundation-funded, or funded, do you, have you seen examples of the, of the funder trying to meddle? Yes, but it's a meddling in a really particular way, which is that a lot of there are very few foundations that exist solely to support journalism. There are few, but there aren't many. There are actually thousands of foundations in this country, and they have very 
specific desires and goals and, and impacts in mind. So it might be to better their community, it might be to better the arts, it might be, you know, there's any hosts of things. So when I say meddling, it's that sometimes they will give a, a news organization money with a very specific um, scope in mind. Maybe, and I'm making this up uh, to be fair, you know, maybe they want you to just cover education. Well, that could be great, but you know, maybe what you really need to cover is something else in that community, but suddenly you have a check in front of you and you feel compelled to cover education. So that's the type of thing that we're seeing here and there, but that overall is kind of concerning. I think that it could be that foundations could be kind of educated about journalism. I went to a big foundation conference and realized that they don't necessarily understand the ethos of journalism and that that goes against the ethos of journalism to tell an immediate organization what they should cover. So I think if we have a little more communication, it, it could change, but it'll take some time and effort. Yeah, you know, in scouting around for money to make films, you know, how, how tough is it out there? Is there, is there money for vigilance? <laughs> I mean, on the documentary side, it's most of the time as documentarians where it's what what would be considered enterprise journalism. So we're, we're starting, we subsidize our own development processes, and then by the time we have something to show or uh, a sense of a pitch, we're, we're going to foundations. So typically it's a, it's a different process in that we're going to places where we think these projects will be well received. Um, I, I'm also sometimes commissioned by entities. I'm currently working on a actually in an, an, an education series, and that's a commission from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So the, the mandate is, is, is very clear. Um, I, I've been very lucky in that the foundations that have supported my work, and in this, this in Reportero, we had quite a bit of support from the Ford Foundation. There was uh, zero editorial meddling and uh, certainly no, no restrictions on what we should and shouldn't, shouldn't be talking about. Another aspect of this discussion of vigilance and where it can come from, you know, as the sort of the standing army of journalists has declined and been given their their honorable or not so honorable discharges, uh, particularly in the last decade, they've gone into all kinds of institutions. And I, and I keep finding old colleagues or people I knew who are doing journalism from within a different kinds of places uh, or journalistic things, or will tell me that at least. Um, I wonder about, start with government as one. You, you started in government, right? You were in, a, in the Inspector General at, at HHS at yeah. Health and Human Services. And, um, you know, I, I mean, the, the, um, the, uh, the legislative leadership in California hired a bunch of journalists out of the press corps, mm -hmm. put them in office, and they occasionally put out stories which have not gotten a lot of, of uh, attention. Um, but you, you, you know, I, there are reporters working in LA County where I live for, for one of the, the board of supervisors. They do sort of journalistic mm -hmm. blogs or sometimes even critical internally. Does that have value? Is that a, you know, can the government be doing this? Can you be doing journalism from within government? Is that where part of vigilance comes from? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think you can. I don't. I don't think you can be doing journalism from within government. I mean, the 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 Office of Inspector General is supposed to be, and this is at the federal level, is supposed to be apolitical. I mean, that wasn't the case, to be totally frank. And I, you know, it's been a long time since I worked there. I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there during the Clinton administration, it was absolutely not apolitical. You know, people make decisions about what course you're going to take, what they're going to fund, what you're going to do. It was. I was told that during the Bush administration, the OIG would write reports 
that would be completely redlined and would turn into uh, you know, a one-page memo if it didn't fall along certain lines. So I don't think that that's possible. Let me disagree a little bit. There's, there's maybe not vigilance, but there is a, um, with resources in, in our world dwindling, um, you know, all these complaints about not covering good news or, or different types of news that come from different types of entities, I think can be reapportioned to other needs. You know, look at locally, the, the mayor's office uh, had at one point three of some of the best former writers in town as far as journalists. This is Mayor Jerry Sanders yeah, in San and, Diego. And yeah. they, were, they, they could have produced a voice of the mayor's office that was quite interesting to read, that I would have read quite well. Um, now, is that government propaganda? Is that his propaganda? Of course it is. But on the other hand, uh, the, look at what the NFL.com is doing. It, it runs columns, analysis, uh, rather interesting, uh, even conflict-type stories. Um, and it's because it's, it's, it's a source going direct. These sources are going direct with their stories. And in a world of dwindling resources, that, that, um, that actually frees those resources to be used for hypervigilance and for you know, make sense of what they're saying, um, fact check it, change it, uh, uh, put it into context, and then find out things that they don't want to say. But perhaps we can drop the, the, the complaint that we're not covering good news and let them cover their own good news. That's a good point. <laughs> That's what, about, what about sort of the NGO as a, as a, as a place? I mean, uh, you know, Human Rights Watch has won some journalistic awards mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. for its work. Um, um, you know, the in in again in in the Los Angeles area, uh, the best one of the best uh, investigative reporters I worked with, the LA Times, Ted Rorlick, now sort of does investigative reporting, but he's paid for by the largest uh, S, uh, service employees international union local. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, what about that sort of thing? I mean, it, if taken with a grain of salt, is that part of the, yeah? In a world where you know Doug Manchester can buy a newspaper for twelve million dollars, we're 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 pretty close to where everyone's just going to be open about what these newspapers are trying to do. And so if a, if a, if a non-governmental organization is open about what it's trying to do and produce, produces a product where it's transparent about uh, its funding and other things like that, we might have to live in a world where, where you look through a menu of, of options like that and, and trust people to put it together into a narrative you can understand. I, what, what, I what do you think? What do you think of this? I was just going to say that uh, that I think as as long as um, these you know these projects are explicit about where their support is coming from, that they're upfront yeah. about it, um, then then I think that at least you're you're giving you have a fighting chance. And interestingly, a lot of the commercial organizations aren't aren't explicit or honest about where their support uh, is coming from. So and I think in some ways we're holding the, the NGOs and the nonprofits to a greater to higher degree of scrutiny than we are the commercial right. world. Um, yeah. We're, yeah. we're switching from a world where you get credibility from the institution you're part of yeah. to where you get credibility based on the algorithm that you're, you're using to find your information and how transparent you are. And so it used to be that a, a young, uh, even fabulous like Jason Blair could go work for the New York Times and he, he would have credibility because he worked for the New York Times. Um, and I think we're, we're switching to a world where an organization has to just be open, show how it goes about its business what its point is, what it's trying to do, and then let the reader um, take with it what you may. What, what about the academy? What about universities as, 
as a home for this. And I should, full disclosure, one of Zocalo's most important partners is Arizona State University. They help us fund our digital humanities journalism, published every day. Um, you work within the academy where you're also doing investigative journalism. Is that a natural home with academic freedom or does that have drawbacks and problems that maybe aren't immediately apparent? I'm sure it does, and I think it just depends on the institution. Um, there is an idea kind of out in the journalism world that we can all become like teaching hospitals, right? That universities can become sort of teaching schools for journalism and put real information out into the world. And I think it depends each year for us. I mean, some years we have an amazing group of students who are very engaged, and as with anything, you might get a year where that's not the case, and so I think there's ups and downs, but I think there are more pros than cons, at least for us. Being at the academic, at an academic institution also has like tremendous benefits, just basic ones. Insurance, now our building is paid for, so we don't pay rent anymore, the university pays the rent. There are many, many benefits to it, but it's a definitely a different way of working. And it involves a lot of time and mentorship beyond the actual reporting and a different type of fundraising, too. Have either of you collaborated with the you know, universities in any of your work? I haven't had much success with it yet. Um, that doesn't mean I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, yeah and I've never done that. I've, no. There's, there is a project we worked on. One of our bigger investigations uh, we worked on with Claremont McKenna about food stamp and, and social welfare uh, services distribution in San Diego County and how much less it was uh, in comparison to other counties in California in particular. And, and they helped us create the data for that. So there are ways Eastern through specific projects. I, I read a lot more about that. I, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a partner of, of Zocalo in the past, actually the Lane Center at Stanford has this sort of partnership with a media lab at Stanford and something called the Spatial History Lab and there's all this, it's, it, it seems to allow the journalists to do more with data, more sort of deeper kind of dive data mining. Um, and the journalist is almost the, the translator of what comes out of the, out of the data. Is that, is that sort of a, the great potential of that? They got big computers and... A partnership always works best when both partners realize they can't do something. Mm -hmm. And so if a journalist realizes they have a problem they could solve, if only they had a camera or a data cruncher or a math, uh, you know, geography whiz or something, then they can do anything. Um, but it, it's very important that both partners realize they can't do what the other partner can do. I, I wonder sometimes if, we, if you know, journalists are, have always been sort of conveners in some sense. They translate, they go find people, translate experts. Um, but, you know, if we're minting fewer journalists, do we get in the, you know, the, the, the army, the army is, is putting, you know, fewer through the boot camp of making cops calls on a night desk. Do you get to the point where you have to sort of train experts and people in different realms of the profession and how to be journalism, that that's the next thing, you know, you know, the journalists won't be the, won't be the troops, it'll be like sort of early Vietnam, will be the folks who come in to, to, to train the citizen or the expert, essentially, you know, we're, we're, we're on a training mission. I actually think the really exciting front will be a version of that where the, um, the forensic accountants become journalists the uh, prosecutors become journalists, um, the you know, military experts become journalists. Um, I think that this idea that, that journalism school just produces journalism is probably, you know, there's a role for storytelling as a profession, but uh, I'm really excited to see like some statisticians have become expert in polling and, 
and in finance writing and stuff like that. And I'm really excited to see that translate to the local level. And if we could ever afford some real accountants to, to, to investigate the city's books and stuff like that, some who also knew how to write, I mean, that would be an expensive person. That's the key part, though. I'm, I'm not worried about CPAs being good storytellers. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I love the. I mean, I, I think that's a really exciting idea to have these sure. hyper-specialized folks in that space. But one of the things that allows me to sleep at night is that I mean, when you spend a lifetime, for good or for bad, working on being a storyteller, yeah. I, you know, I may not be an expert, but I'm smart enough to know where I don't know something, and I can talk to somebody and double down mm -hmm. in, in, in that particular field. And I think something like Planet Money is such sure. a, is a, a, a great example. I mean, it's an hour of riveting radio mm -hmm. uh, about right. these hard economic concepts, and they do precisely what you've been talking about, this education piece, where you take something that's incredibly complex and you boil it down mm -hmm. into a way that that makes sense to a viewer, but it's all told through, through narrative, through the, the kind of power of narrative. And I feel like I, I'm, I'm an, an, not an expert and woefully uneducated about vast pieces of, of American life. But you know, as a storyteller, I understand I need to go here and there to, to, to put those pieces Absolutely. together. Is there, um, I wanted to follow up on something you, you referenced, which is the notion of the, the, the the journalism school is teaching hospital. You're seeing more journalism schools asked to do more than that. There was a bunch of foundations got together fairly recently and wrote a letter. I'll use a verb that you know you're not supposed to use in writing old newspaper leads. Slammed really mm -hmm. journalism schools around the country for not you know not moving towards that model um, and suggest that they weren't. I mean, what what are you know what are journalism schools producing and and I sort of, part of me wonders if there isn't a, I mean, is that sort of, is part, is part of what's going on, I mean, this is, again, a cynical journalist question, is part of what's going on, you know, we're trying to keep labor costs low, we're looking for, for, for you know, not, I mean, that's, that's a perfect model, right? Those are people, you don't need, not only don't have to pay, but they're paying you for the privilege of doing sports. the work, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, this, I, the thing, and this is completely my opinion, is that I think that, the world is changing so much faster than academia is accustomed to. Journalism, I mean, even just a few years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be having the death of the newspaper conversation, right. which we had for like five or six yeah. years. We Funny. all <laughs> went to those panels. And I feel like things change so quickly. The technology has changed things so rapidly um, that I think academia has a very hard time keeping up and knowing what to tell young journalists who are coming to the school, what they should do. A year ago, it was they should do everything. This year, I'm reading a slew of articles saying, no, I want specialists again. Well, so it, I think that's partly what's happening, is, is the world is moving at such a rapid pace. We also have the switch, though, that with such a uh, robust media industry for so long, um, the goal of academia, as it applied to media, was to protect quality, to enforce quality, to change and to, to talk about best practices. With the death of the media industry, and I, I mean, it is a death, it's the, the graphs are, are just shocking. The, the role has to switch to innovation, to, mm -hmm. to figuring out how to protect those values, that, the vigilance and other things that we care about. And so that itself has to have some element of, of innovation and creativity. It can't just be about best practices, uh, these great stories we wrote, that sort of thing. If you want to become a documentary filmmaker, where do you <laughs> learn how to do that? Where do you go train? Where, where you just pick up your camera? I mean, what advice do you give to someone who says, I want to be like Bernardo Ruiz. I want to have this, this you know, I want to 
do a film like Ripper Terror. You know those scared straight documentaries, you know, where <laughs> an ex-con goes and talks to a kid who's just gotten into, got into trouble? I sometimes feel like I go into to documentary programs and I give that lecture, like, do you really want to do this? Do you yeah. know what this is going to lead to? Um, I think, you know, I actually teach in uh, the School of Visual Arts newly created MFA program. They have a, a social documentary program. It's a two-year program. That's in New York. In New York, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, think there, I think they're really... There are really two routes. I mean, one is the route that I took, which is like running away to, to join the circus. It's, it's like being a minor league ball player. You basically, you, you train at the feet of people who are really good at what they do. And who I trained you? I was lucky enough to work for a couple of really great filmmakers. Um, I worked for Orlando Bagwell for a few uh, years on a series called Matters of Race, which was a PBS series. And Orlando had come out of the Eyes on the Prize series, looking at civil rights history in America. Um, and uh, I, that, was a, that was a kind of a fundamental place for me to learn. I also worked on the documentary series POV for a long time. But I, I learned by working in production and then by immediately working on, on things of, of my own. Um, but I do think there is a benefit to, uh, to that best, uh, best practices uh, thing that happens in an institution um, where you're not just... Um, struggling to make the thing. You're actually talking about it, and you also have community and resources. Uh, so I think if you, if you can afford it, I, I think that is certainly a, a powerful route. I just happen to have learned the, the, the hardest way possible, which is just by working in production and you know, not, not doing anything else. Is, is that an issue here, that, that the, the, the kind of the methods, the, the, the institutions and the sort of patterns of career that allowed people to be trained to to do sort of watchdogs type stuff, whether they were exactly journalists or, you know, did similar things. Are those drying up? I mean... I, I mean, documentary film is interesting because in some ways I think that still really exists. That apprenticeship model is really part of how you become a filmmaker. But I think in journalism, the apprenticeship model that the newspapers used to offer is definitely going away. And you have a staff of 10 and you might be able to mentor some number, but it used to be the copy boy or girl, and you know, you really could rise through the ranks. So I think we are in a different place, but at the same time, every, I, I don't want to put a quality judgment on that because but everything's it, different. But it's also the disruptions also freeing up possibilities for other people to arise right, that exactly. wouldn't have in the old system. Exactly. And I think it's that, a very closed system. Where absolutely. are your clips? Where's your summer internship? Yeah, exactly. all that right. sort of thing. And it was a very defined path. I was actually in the path and then watched it explode. <laughs> and, and so that was, you know, it's jarring and it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So, But I also think it, it offers some opportunities for people who are building their brand and credibility to rise through. Here's a question. I mean, I think it, one thing that seems changed with is it gets very diverse. And the last question before we go to the audience for questions. But, you know, it used to be when there weren't as many institutions, when it wasn't this bigger, more diverse, you know, kind of crazy array of things where, you know, people sort of wonder who's a journalist anymore and what's that. There used to, it seemed like there was a stronger, commonly publicly known ethic of what a journalist was supposed to be and how to behave. And it doesn't seem to me that there's been any, we're sort of without an ethic. Well, I, so, I mean, is there, should there be basic sort of training for the citizen to know what a journalist is when they're, when, you know, how they could do very basic journalistic things? I well, mean, you remember we talked about education. 
journalists always knew this, and they always talk about all these rules and ethics yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. But the broader public, they never took the time to actually narrate that to tell to enroll the public in their own narrative. You know, everyone in, in a newspaper knew that the editorials were separate from the from the newspaper. But there's nothing very stark in the actual paper explaining that. You know, like every day and. And we just assume that they all they have that they you know we do a story three months ago they assume we assume they read it. Um, this is just a problem in our industry, and 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 one thing that these new entities have to do is enroll people in the high standards that they have, talk about constantly why they should be trusted, that sort of thing. But it's a constant um, enrollment. Right. I, I do want to say though that one thing that I do feel like has been lost is that well, there's more room for new voices and more innovative voices. By the time the newspapers collapsed, most of them had made a really strong commitment to diversity. And that still exists yeah. in some of those newsrooms. And as you're seeing these new nonprofits come up, for reasons that are just yep. b mere survival, they're not there at that point. So we are losing, actually, Absolutely. a lot of diversity in our journalism. And so that's one real big red flag that I feel very strongly about in figuring out how to support all these nonprofits in those goals. When a newspaper was an institution that you could complain to to right. change its practices, um, that was the way to solve the problems in some, in some ways. And now with the institution falling apart, you have to solve those problems yourself. Right. And some people do it and have made real commitments, and, and some organizations don't for yeah. a wide variety of reasons. I think with that, let's open it up to the audience. What is your opinion of Julian and the work of um, leaks? We've had Julian Assange as a guest uh, for a couple of years, um, both on Skype and in person before he was. You know, it, that's a complicated issue. I mean, it really is. Um, for so many reasons, and one of the one of the problems right now is it's hard to kind of parse Julian Assange as a figure from the, what he was actually doing. So I would I would say that I don't have a clear answer to that. In a lot of ways, I support what he what he was trying to do. I don't know if I support it in the way that he did it. I mean, I think most journalists believe in pu the public's access to information. That's why we do what we do. Um, but He's an interesting figure and went about things in a very particular way, and it just makes things very complicated, at least for me. Uh, I, I support and defend his right to do what, what they did. I, I think um, there is some discomfort with his personality, with his, with his figure. Um, but I think this is an example of, a, of another uh, formula being applied to the old journalism right. problem. Right. Of, uh, you know, I think Homicide Watch in Washington, D.C. is another one where instead of... Um, everything having to go through a 10-inch story on the front page of A1 or whatever, that, these, that this is a way to apply a formula to solving a problem, which is to take a bunch of documents and get them into the hands of the crowd and see what we can figure out. And I think it's interesting to watch, and I defend his right to, to do a lot of what he did. Um, there are some problems that we all need to wrestle with uh, with, with regard to how he did it. Though. The professional norms and ethics are prison, right? There's certain things you cannot do in certain places you can go, but Julian Assange doesn't have to play that game. James O'Keefe, the, mm -hmm. the sort of the conservative Prankster. guy who, who, right, who right, right. dresses up. Right. Um, do you think that's, I mean, it's valuable to have those people who are, you know, I mean, this era gives those people a reach and willing yeah. to, you know, the rest of us, we have to, there's certain things we can't do. They, they'll do almost anything. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's a great question. I mean, is Assange a journalist? Is he, uh, is he a hacker? Is he just uh, someone who's responsible for massive 
uh, data dumps. Um, I, I think I personally, interestingly, I think I have a slightly more conservative take on, on what a journalist can and should do. I, I would prefer to have I, a, a trusted uh, source that can synthesize some of that information for me. Um, someone that I can follow over a period of time. And over time, I, I, that, that uh, writer gains credibility for me as, as somebody who I, I, I respect over time. Um, then again, you, know, you have to ask yourself, did Assange's, uh, did what he, did it have an impact? Did that act of releasing that inf- all, all of those information at different times and at different places, did it have an impact? And of course, it had huge impact. So on the one hand, you're gauging impact on the other hand, you're, you're ha- we're having a conversation about ethics and standards that maybe to some people feel outmoded and, and old-fashioned, but uh, they're very relevant questions. And that, that's part of why I wanted to make Reportero, because in some way, the journalism that is being practiced at SETA harkens back to a kind of old-school, investigative, mm-hmm. print journalism that, um, you know, I, not, not that I'm, I'm be- I was being romantic, but that that I, I kind of wanted to still see in, in practice and in, in a place. Just quickly, the two documentary filmmakers, you ever gone undercover? You ever no. been tempted to? No. To try that sort of thing? I've always had to be very upfront no. about what, who I am and what I'm doing. And also, very difficult to do that nowadays. And someone can Google you yeah. or look yeah. you up on Facebook in, in two seconds. Yeah. A lot of times, good questions aren't being asked. I mean, it is frustrating to know that especially in an election year, someone gives a response that the journalist probably knows isn't true and they're not responding in a way that's satisfactory. I don't know how to solve that issue, but I I wanted to empathize with that feeling. Where do you see journalism in 2020? How would you like it to be? Unfortunately, I think everybody is, is waiting for what's next, like what's the new reality. But the new reality is probably just constant evolution. Um, you know, and to the point where what we see in 2020 even is, is incomprehensible. Um, and that's scary and it's, and it's hard unless you, you try to take control of your own part of it and, and build something like what you're, what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't, and I don't think anybody who says they do has any kind of clue, but it, it'll, it'll, it'll be good. Every time there's a new and Clay Shirky just did an amazing talk on, if you go to TED, they just posted it on TED. Uh, every time there's a new printing press or something, everyone thinks it's the end of yeah. the world or that it's right. all going to bring perfect peace and harmony. It, and it doesn't either. It, it makes things better in a lot of ways and it makes things worse mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, it, and we're going to watch it get better and worse. What we're seeing now is the place to go for news is Huffington Post. But now they got bought out, so now that's been dumbed down. So now... Twitter's the big thing. And then there'll be something else when Twitter gets bought out. So how do you see San Diego responding to the really big stories? Like San Onofre is a $1.2 billion grab of money, yet nobody in San Diego, news-wise, is even talking about it. Shh, Edison, don't touch that, you know? And, I, and I that's real scary. I don't think that's fair. I mean, we did a full, uh, a, a big story on San Onofre, put it in San Diego Magazine. It was also on San Diego Explain on NBC. That was an example of using our different collaborative partners to put that out. You couldn't comment on an Edward R. Murrow post in the past. Um, now you do have an interaction with reporters that I think is unprecedented and excited, mm-hmm. exciting. Uh, but you're right. I mean, there, we, need, we need better, stronger, uh, more interesting coverage of, of these institutions, of these big changes, and of these scandals. Um, it's, it's just that it's, 
you know, you can't just pick and choose an outrage and, and think that that's, that's characteristic of the whole, whole thing. Now look, Twitter is not delivering the information. Twitter is, is sources like me and others who are providing a way to organize that information differently. Don't think of Twitter as 140 characters of information. Think of it as 140 characters to invite people to get deeper into a subject, because every tweet has a link. It's a very special medium that's allowing people to connect and share information extremely well, and, and things about San Onofre spread a lot faster than they would have in the past. I'm curious what you think of how Occupy changed the conversation and impacted the media message and also trained citizen journalists as part of that process. I think it had a huge impact. I mean, I think if you look at the election right now, the way we're discussing so many things, it's just, it's become part of all of our vernacular, which I think similarly to not being able to comment on an Edward R. Murrow, I mean, 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been exactly the same case. So I think it, it had an enormous impact. I, I still think it shows what an exciting time it is, is that to me that is community activism. That's not journalism. They may have trained, uh, train people to use journalistic techniques and there's some reporting that happens. But I think, I mean, I think we are at a moment where we're asking ourselves, is journalism still something that is unbiased, showing what's happening versus having a point of view that you're trying to get across? I still make a distinction. I do both. I mean, the weather underground is not something that is, um, doesn't have an opinion on a certain level. But I do, I do feel that there's still a distinction, personally. And I think it's just now that more people have the opportunity to have a voice in a very strong and powerful way. Have you looked at some of the film work produced by Occupy? I think I'm actually excited to see who's going to, who, you know, what, what groups of filmmakers are going to tell the Occupy story. I mean, I think it really remains to be seen what, what impact they've, they, they've had. Um, they certainly impacted the conversation, although I would say in 2012, in an election year, we're still not talking about the income inequality and poverty um, and structural inequality in, in deeper and more profound ways. Uh, so that's, that's I, you, I can't, you can't chalk that up to, uh, that's not Occupy's uh, failure. It's just that it, it's something that we, are, we still struggle with in this country from my perspective. To, to, quick, to quickly follow up on that, one advantage Occupy had, at least in bigger cities, is they had, um, they were shooting film, but they also had something I often wish I had when I was a journalist, which is they had volunteer lawyers there, mm -hmm. you know, helping them. There's all this sort of fighting that goes on as, you know, people can be their citizen journalists and mm -hmm. journalists mm -hmm. have cameras that they take with them about where the public space is, what you can shoot, what you can't shoot, what you do when the cops decide to club you over the head. Um, you know, I mean, are, 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 do you work with a lawyer when you're, when you're out there? I mean, do you have a lawyer that you consult with often? Uh, I'm lawyered up because that, that's the reality <laughs> of being a documentary yeah. filmmaker. Also, I mean, I think people, right, rightly so, uh, are so much more sophisticated. And I, I think because, uh, because of things like reality television, and people are much more aware of media in some ways more comfortable with it. It's ubiquitous, but at the same time, there's a sense of, of opportunity sometimes, and so it's, it, it, is, it is a necessary, I won't call it a necessary evil because I like my attorney, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it, it is a, a part of that, of that puzzle. But again, Occupy is a movement. Occupy is a social movement, and I, I personally think an important one in reframing the conversation around class and inequality in America. But again, I, I would agree with Carrie that I don't necessarily see what Occupy is doing as journalism, um, it's a kind of social vigilance, but I, I don't mm -hmm. see them as, as journalists. Uh, I, I'm still looking to an independent source to, 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 to provoke and tell stories in a different way. What, what, I, what I look at Occupy as is, is, is 
not as a, um, an example of citizen journalism as much as a, an example of what a group of citizens can do to influence journalism. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's always this mentality that the, that the journalists or the media is doing its thing and you can't, you, you know, it's, it, it, it drives the narrative. And to some extent it feeds itself and it does that, but it was a very, you know, there's it, always been really good PR people and stuff that have, that have that formed that narrative for a long time. But I think Occupied showed how a cohesive and interesting discussion could impact that narrative as well. I'm Rick Zazueta. I like the model for being transparent, exposing your methods as, but almost professionally, but what would you do or say to somebody that has never written, but wants to be a vigilante? What motivates somebody to be a vigilante? And a follow-up is the craft of reporting, as he was saying, that getting lost. You mean that one person wants to go out and, you know, commit journalism and hold yeah, their government yeah, accountable? That's, that's what I mean. Vigilance is vigilante. That's, vigilante uh, <laughs> you need to start. I mean, we all started yeah. somewhere. Um, you have to just start telling a story and see if you can get traction and get, um, get into networks that support you. Um, I'm talking about motivation, the, the psychological oh, motivation oh. for somebody to go ahead and do that. You never write as well as you write when you're mad. Um, <laughs> you got to read it after you do that and make sure you're all right. But it seems to flow really well then, yeah. Um, find out some, I mean, what makes you passionate and you, you tap into that. Um, and, you know, whether it's soccer, you know, mismanagement or whether it's, you know, something greater about the society, I think it tap into something that, that really fires you up. And then make sure you do the work to make a good case about it. So lawyer, what, lawyers do the same thing. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a process of being effective at, at making a case. Uh, yeah. What, what drives the two of you to get into this? Is it... Is it you know, the usual thing, unhappy childhood. <laughs> uh. <laughs> That's a good question. No, I think um, it's funny. It's like even reading my bio here tonight, I was like, oh, is that me? I always think of myself first and foremost as a storyteller. Mm. And that storytelling takes a lot of different forms. And it's, you know, storytelling sometimes with the point of view or with the goal of having an impact. It's kind of just a sense of, I don't know, maybe it is the parents, civic duty, whatever it is. But the one thing I will say probably about all of us and all of the investigative reporters I know is they're just obsessive people and they're very very curious and you know you see a problem and many of us can see it and Try they just them, right? right right you just can't you can't let go you know what what is going on there and that's kind of the case for most of the people that I know who do both types of work just a real obsessive curiosity about the way the world works and hopefully trying to make it work a little bit better I think for me, I, I would very much agree with what Carrie's saying, but I think it's also trying to get at what makes people tick and also just not understanding myself how institutions work sometimes and just really trying to ask those questions uh, and figure out those questions. I, I, I think um, something like David Simon's The Wire did such a masterful job of telling this upstairs, downstairs story, uh, a story about the drug war, a story about the, the inner city, about Baltimore, I, I think um, that's not a, it's not a piece of journalism, and yet at the same time, it's so informed by uh, a long and interesting career in, in journalism, in local journalism, that um, something like that to me has tremendous power. Uh, narrative for good or for bad is the way that we absorb, tend to absorb information in this, at this moment in time in this, this, this society. And so I think for me, 
when I see those projects that can impact the culture, that can reframe the way we think about something, that to me is what, what really gets me excited. And those are the types of things that I try to throw myself toward. I remember on the college paper, a fellow named Josh Gerstein is now a big deal reporter <laughs> at Politico. Um, his trick, he liked to go through the trash of the board of overseers of the university after they had their meetings and, and wanted me to come along. And, and the fact that there was something you could do for a living that had maybe even a tiny bit of respect around it, a very tiny bit of respect, involved diving through people's <laughs> trash just seemed like so interesting and attractive in such a way. But is the dumpster dive over? Have the lawyers shut that down? There's a lot of locks on dumpsters these days. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, true. that's That's too bad. Um, that's true. Anyway, um, please join me in, in thanking everyone uh, uh, for being here tonight and thanking the panel. And we'll see you at the reception. <laughs>